Well, we are continuing in our study of the covenants. We've been through the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, and now we are looking at the, the new covenant, which is contrasted with the old covenant, or the Mosaic law, the, the covenant that God made with Moses back in Exodus 19. And last week, we looked at primarily at Jeremiah 31. We worked our way up through Jeremiah a little bit and got to this section where God had made this covenant with Jeremiah. And uh, you might remember this T-chart that Jeremy drew up for us, separating out the spiritual benefits of the new covenant from the physical benefits of the new covenant, recognizing that this new covenant that God had uh, established and was explaining through Jeremiah um, that it has both aspects, spiritual and physical. And the spiritual aspects, we talk about how we have been adopted into um, and we enjoy those blessings right now. We've been grafted into that. We'll get into that a little bit more next week as we get into the, the New Testament. But I think it'd be good for us to go back and review Jeremiah 31 since that is foundational to the new covenant. So if you're not already there, turn to Jeremiah 31. And I put up here that the ones that the spiritual aspects are primarily in those first few verses that I put up there, 31 to 34. And so as we read through, we'll be looking for the, the internalization of the law that God has put his law, or he's saying that he will put his law on the hearts and the minds. And remind me, who is in view here in Jeremiah 31? Israel is in view, right? And so I'm, I'm talking like past tense, like it's already happened to us, the church. Again, we'll get there next week, especially in Hebrews 8, and we'll talk about how we are the beneficiaries of this new covenant. Um, but at this time, he was speaking about it as future, and it's important to remember that it is Israel who is in view, and we'll see that. Um, we do see that in the, the physical aspects, which are mentioned a little bit further down, verses 38 through 40. So can I get somebody to read uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 for us, please? Yeah. Thanks. Says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, <coughs> the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. All right. Thank you. So hopefully you've uh, been able to see those different aspects in there, the internalization of the law, that everybody will know God. It's not going to be... Um, something that's just exclusive to a certain part of Israel, but all will know God. And then uh, the forgiveness of sin, that is huge. Because up until this point, Israel has failed at that, right? They have been unable to um, be forgiven of their sin. Um, 
their sin, of course, is going, their forgiveness of sin, of course, is going to be based upon what uh, Jesus is going to do on the cross, just as our forgiveness of sin is. And did you notice how many times throughout there, I think it's like five times that God said, I will do this uh, throughout just those short, few short verses, God saying, I will, I will, I will. So we can see that this is something that is not based upon Israel and their submission to this covenant, like the old covenant. Remember, the old covenant was conditional, whereas this covenant is unconditional. It's based upon God and God alone. That's why he says over and over again that he will do these things. Um, in, in Jeremiah, we see that the, the new covenant is differentiated from the Mosaic covenant. Did you guys catch that in verse 32? He says that it's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So he's differentiating. He's saying that the old covenant, that was the, the Mosaic covenant, this uh, conditional covenant, is different from this new covenant, this unconditional covenant. And then he also goes on, and it's in verses 33 to 34 that he uh, talks about the internal transformation, that it's not just the, the externals of keeping the law, but it's um, something that takes place internally to the person. So those are two big uh, distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And then in the, the following verses, 35 through 37, um, that's really where God talks about his unchanging character and his promises and how his promises are trustworthy, uh, similar to Hebrews 6, where he says that, um, where God says, I swear by nobody else. He, he swears by himself because there's nobody greater than God that he can swear by. Same kind of aspects going on, 35 to 37, talking about his trustworthy character. And then again, verses 38 through 40 are focusing on the spiritual aspects of Israel. So, um, three different, or three aspects of this covenant, if we could kind of boil it down a little bit. The new covenant provides for spiritual transformation, for uh, forgiveness of sins, and the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. So, that just kind of boils it down a little bit. So, spiritual transformation, forgiveness of sins, and then this very important part, which is focused on the physical, is it's talking about the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And if we forget, especially that latter part, that's where we can get into trouble thinking that um, somehow we have superseded Israel, that the church has superseded Israel in that regard. And that would really undermine God's promises that he made initially through this covenant and all the, the previous covenants as well. Remember that this covenant has really encapsulated within it the previous covenants. We looked at um, the, the physical aspects of the land, how God promised Abraham land, how he promised David a, a kingdom. So they all kind of come together and culminate here in the, the new covenant. And so while Jeremiah is emphasizing the fulfillment of God's promises through Abraham, today we're going to be looking primarily in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is going to focus more on God's relationship with his people. So Isaiah is looking at how God fulfills his promise to Abraham. Ezekiel 
is looking at the relationship that God is going to establish with those who are within the new covenant. Any thoughts or questions on any of this in Jeremiah before we jump over to Ezekiel? All right. Well, let's go over to Ezekiel then. And we're going to make our way to Ezekiel 36, but first let's go to Ezekiel 28. We'll work our way up there and um, spend the bulk of our time in Ezekiel 36. Uh, You'll notice that Ezekiel hits a lot of the same highlights that Jeremiah hits in this uh, explanation of the New Covenant, but he also includes several additional characteristics that we pick up um, from Ezekiel that aren't included in Jeremiah, so we'll pay special attention to those. But Ezekiel 28, and to get somebody to read verses 25 through 26 for us, please. Thank you. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. All right, good. What did you guys see in there that is similar to the new covenant as explained in Jeremiah 31? What are some similarities you guys picked up on? Rebuilding cities. Yep, rebuilding cities, good. Yeah, gathering them together. And it's um, gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered. So recognizing they're scattered not just in, in one area, but abroad. And uh, we mentioned last week, and we'll see again tonight, that it's not just uh, Israel proper, not just the, the northern kingdom, it's the northern and southern kingdom brought together, uh, being reunited as one uh, unified nation. It also says they, they will know that he is the Lord their God, and there will be that innate knowledge. Yep. Yeah, that innate knowledge, nobody having to explain to them. I think it's... Uh, 1 John 2.27, talking about how we have the, the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, so we have no need for uh, a teacher. He is the one who teaches us, who guides us. That's harking back to this aspect of the New Covenant that nobody will uh, need to know. We'll have that knowledge just by nature. Anything else? Notice it the beginning of 26, not only will they be brought back to the land, but they will live in it securely. But they're not going to have to uh, fight to live in their land, to stay there, to have safety. It's going to be safe and secure for them to live there. And then also, up in 25, that uh, my holiness in them, um, that he will manifest his holiness in them. So that kind of goes along with this um, innate understanding. And that's how this innate understanding comes about because the holiness of God, the Holy Spirit himself is going to take up residence and reside reside within uh, his people. All right, so we see there that Israel is regathered, that they'll live securely, that God will execute judgment. And then at the end, this is a phrase that you see all throughout Ezekiel. Um, They will know that I am the Lord their God. Um, I have it underlined in a unique way in my Bible. 
same phrase is up in verse 24, up in verse 22 of the same chapter. Um, just looking over on the other side of my page, chapter 29, it's in verse 6, verse 9. Uh, it's got to be dozens of times throughout the book of Ezekiel that you see this phrase, they will know that I am the Lord. This is one of the key phrases of Ezekiel. We were just looking in Melissa's Bible because she, last time she read it, or one of the times recently she read it, she counted. We were trying to see where it's, her numbering stopped, but it was in the 50s last time we saw it. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be high. Oh. Yeah. 83. 83. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, not one in, in chapter 31, interestingly, but every chapter up through 37. Unless I just missed one in 31, which is very likely. All right, so know that I am the Lord. That's one of the, the key themes of Ezekiel, and we'll see that again, even as we're looking at the, the new covenant that God is making with Ezekiel. And um, in this section over in Ezekiel 28, uh, it's talking about how Israel is going to come back and they're going to possess their land, they're going to live in safety. And last week we talked about how... Um, they eventually came back from the Babylonian captivity. That's what's going on while Jeremiah is writing. He's writing from 586 to 570. And so in a sense, they could have gotten a glimpse of this coming back to their land after the Babylonian captivity, but that's not what is ultimately in view. Because again, they're not going to, after that, they didn't dwell securely, right? It was only a matter of years before they had other nations coming in and uh, pushing their thumb down on them, telling them, what it is that they were to do and how they were to live. And so it's still speaking of yet a future fulfillment. And Jeremy handed out that chart last week with the, the eight reasons that Israel's restoration isn't looking to just the, the restoration after the Babylonian captivity. So this is still yet future. Ezra had to strive to study to know the law and to do it and to teach it. It yep. was not internalized for any of them. Yep. Yeah, you- the the book of the law and then they had national repentance and that wasn't the last time that they came together and they repented as a nation it was a, a continual thing and uh, we know that today they're still in need of national repentance all right well let's jump over to ezekiel 34 it's a great chapter ezekiel 34 and we're just going to hit some highlights throughout this chapter um just to kind of give an overview, the chapter is talking about selfish, selfish shepherds of Israel, speaking of those who are leading and guiding God's people, God's people that he loves. Uh, you can go back to Deuteronomy 7, you can see that God chose Israel because he loved them, not because they were any great nation, not because there was anything special about them. He just decided, I love them, and I'm going to choose them. And he placed over Israel uh, priests and people to lead them, people to guide them, because they're his people, because he cares for them, he loves them. And this chapter goes and talks about how these shepherds weren't fulfilling their duty, how they were uh, abdicating their responsibility to lead Israel properly. So could I actually get somebody to read the first three verses, Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 3? Thanks. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? 
You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. All right, then he just keeps going on. He's just laying into them, talking about how they're seeking their own gain, their own personal gain. They're not caring for the sheep. Uh, that is Israel. Down in verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed them themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Again, God loves his people. He cares about his people. And here he's even coming against the leaders of the people to establish um, his nation up underneath his own care like they they once were remember that they were a, a theocracy beforehand they demanded a god first samuel 8 they demanded not a god a king they wanted a king like the surrounding nations even though god warned them well this is what's going to happen he's going to come and he's going to rule over you and he's going to take your kids and send them off to war and he's going to make you pay taxes and they're like no we want a worldly king uh essentially saying that god you're not good enough and um, God wants to uh, rescue them and bring them back. Uh, look with me at verse 23. Starting in 23, it says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Uh, let's stop there for a second. So that covenant of peace, uh, we see that a few times in Scripture. And I put the, the references up here. So Numbers 25:12 here in Ezekiel 34:25, In a couple chapters, we'll look at Ezekiel 37:26, and also Isaiah 54:10. So all these talk about the covenant of peace. And I think that there is a, a lot of overlap with the, the New Covenant. But back here in Numbers 25.12, that was dealing with the covenant we looked at a couple weeks ago with Phineas and how God told Phineas, well, you're going to have an eternal priesthood, a priesthood that goes on forever. And he uses that same phrase, covenant of peace. And now it's repeated here and again a couple other times in reference to the New Covenant. Remember, we're talking about how all these other covenants are kind of wrapped up within the new covenant and they find their fulfillment, their ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. So it's kind of interesting that we see uh, covenant of peace spoken of there. These other references down here, Isaiah 49, 8, 59, 21, Hosea 2, 18 through 23, Ezekiel 16, 6 through 13. We're not going to look at those, but those talk about uh, God's covenant or if he's speaking, he'll say about my covenant. And um, I think there's, that's a, a good study to do later on to see how that ties in with the New Covenant. And it's just different language that you'll find speaking of the New Covenant. So covenant of peace and God's covenant are two different terms that really are talking about the same thing, have a lot of overlap. All right, I just interrupted myself. I'm going to pick back up in Ezekiel 34:25. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may 
live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit on the earth and will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them, they will no longer be a prey to the nations, and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land, and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Then they will know that I, the Lord, am their God, and that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. As, as for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So we saw at the beginning of that passage that they're going to have how many shepherds over them? Just one, right? So God is, he's fed up with these other selfish shepherds. He says, I'm going to do away with you. Uh, my servant, my, uh, my shepherd, David, is going to reign over them. My one servant, David, will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then he talks about, again, this covenant of peace that they're going to have. They're going to dwell uh, securely. They're going to have all these, um, like we saw up here, agricultural blessings, right? Peace and safety, great and mighty kingdom. We see this here, that it's going to come in the future in the form of this one shepherd that is going to reign over all of Israel, both Judah and Israel together. Um, just because I've been going through Mark on Sundays, um, we, when we were going through Mark 6, 34, talked about how uh, when Jesus is going there to feed the, the 5,000, it says that he came up and he saw them and he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. This kind of goes back to the same uh, passage, talking about how Israel doesn't have spiritual leaders and how the, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, they were dropping the ball. They weren't leading the people like they were supposed to. And so Jesus, uh, the son of David, had compassion on them then. And he's going to reign and rule over uh, Israel and the church in the future. Any thoughts or questions on any of that before we jump into Ezekiel 36? I know you're not a... Uh, you, you've never been a covenant theologian in your Christian life. You've been no. dispensational. So you can't speak authoritatively, I guess, from having been on the other side. But as you look at a passage like that that talks about banishing wild beasts, you can sleep in the woods and be okay. Uh, you know, very like, physical, tangible things yeah. uh, that are going on. The plantations that God provides and all that stuff. Uh, what would be your option if you if we, I mean, can you just speculate? You, well, well, you would have to allegorize it, and just like Satan is bound right now, for like during this time, uh, from uh, from the perspective of somebody who is an advocate of covenant theology, Satan is currently bound. Um, I and locked in the in, endless abyss. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can make sense out of that, then I suppose this really isn't much of an issue, but. Yeah, it's, I can it, imagine like the passage you're just bringing up in 
the Gospel of Mark, where it's like, okay, yeah. sheep, sheep, that's the connection. But then you look at something specific, like you can sleep in the woods because there are no wild beasts. I yeah. think you just have to get really goofy on that. Yeah. Uh, I think you and I would both say, well, that's speaking of the, the safety that they're going to have, right? They're going to have this ability to go out and do that safely. And so, yeah, they would have to say, well, if, if Satan is bound and we can live in whatever kind of safety that is. Um, but, but Paul but specifically says sense. wild beasts were after him in his ministry. <laughs> uh, you don't have to give this <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's just a funny thing, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. You'll have to ask somebody who actually holds that. That would be. They never want to talk to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts before we move on? All right. Let's jump over to Ezekiel 36. And we'll start in verse 22. So Ezekiel 36. And could I get somebody to read 22 to through 24 for us, please? I got it. Thanks, Andy. Let me get there. <laughs> All right. I got it. Got it. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now we'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. So looking at those first few verses, 22 through 24, what is God's motivation for working on behalf of his people, Israel? For his name. Yeah, for himself, right? For his own glory. Uh, obviously, Israel is going to be the, the beneficiary of that. They're uh, going to get quite a bit out of that. But he says that he is doing this for himself, that he's about to act for his holy name, the name that they have profaned. Um, remember, we several weeks ago now, we looked at Hosea 3 and talking about how Israel really is pictured as being the, the bride of Christ, but they have been, um, they've treated themselves like a harlot. They've gone out and they've profaned themselves. They've gone after other gods, other idols. And um, God is doing this for his own namesake, not necessarily for Israel. And who is to witness this? Who's going to witness God and how he lifts up his name? The nations. The nations, right? So the nations also, the, the Gentiles, we're going to get to see this and we're going to see God's glory. We're going to see God working on his own behalf, fulfilling his promises and be able to, to recognize that God is unique, right? That he is uh, set apart and he is um, keeping his word, his oaths, his promises that he has made beforehand. Looking at verses 25 and 26, which say, then I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all your idols. So that's, those are all encompassing statements, right? I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness, all your idols. And then moreover, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is, is do you think this is uh, spiritual or physical? Going back to our, our chart here, is this a reference to a, a spiritual benefit or a physical benefit? Spiritual. All right, good. So we don't actually have like physical hearts of stone that are <laughs> taken out surgically, right? And replaced with a heart of flesh. It's a, a spiritual statement talking about how um, God is going to make his people new. He's going to cleanse them um, from all filthiness and from all idols. Again, it's all encompassing. This um, concept of regeneration to be made new, we see all throughout scripture, uh, especially in John chapter three, right? You guys remember John three with Nicodemus and the new birth. And he tells him that you must be born both of water and the spirit. I think it's harking back to these very verses. Um, people have all different kinds of interpretations about what it's saying. But Jesus is talking to the, the religious leader, right? He says, are you the religious leader and you don't know these things? And um, it's talking about his cleansing water that he's going to sprinkle on them, verse 25. And then um, 24, that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So you must be born both of water and the spirit, this new birth, this regeneration that takes place through God's work. Any thoughts or questions? All right. Verse 27, we see the, the same concept. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, statutes, and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. This is something that, again, Israel didn't have the ability to do before. They didn't have the ability to obey the old covenant, to obey the law of Moses. Uh, Romans 3, 19, 20 says, Therefore, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. For through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become aware that we're unable to keep the law. And Israel was in that same boat. Uh, they had the law laid out before them, this law which reflected the holiness of God, and they saw that they fell short on account one, two, three, four. Uh, James says, if you fail at even one point, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And uh, here we see that God is telling his people through Ezekiel in verse 27 that he's going to place his spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes so that they will be careful to observe his ordinances. This is something that is uh, it was once an impossibility and now has become a possibility through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit within uh, his people who gives the ability to live a, a fulfilled life, a holy life. Um, same concept we saw back in Jeremiah 31, 32. Again, the, the Old Testament law was unable to, uh, to provide this. We'll look at this again next week in Hebrews 8 that we need a new covenant because the old is obsolete. 
if the old was sufficient, then there would be no need for a new covenant. But the old wasn't able to provide salvation. It was good and it was right, Paul says, but it wasn't able to provide salvation. Moving on in verse 28. It says, You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Again, we see uh, a focus, an emphasis on the, the physical part, right? On the land that God promised to Abraham, that he promised to David. Uh, God is faithful and he's not going to uh, back out on those physical promises. Those are very important. And then uh, 29 through 30. Will somebody read those two verses for us, please? All right, go ahead, Stan. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the rain and multiply it, and I will not bring a, fam- a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. All right. So again, we see they're going to live in uh, peace and safety. They're going to have uh, physical safety, and not only physical safety, but prosperity. That they're going to, uh, they're going to thrive in their land. They're not just going to get by. They're not just going to survive. They're going to be thriving um, in this land that God had promised to their fathers. Again, the the land is important. And if we don't take a, a literal, historical, grammatical approach to the text. Um, and understand that this was a physical promise that God made to his people Israel, then again, we have to twist the text. We have to allegorize it to make it say something else that it's not saying. Um, what does it mean for Israel to have a land, a land that is, is prosperous, if it's not speaking about a, a literal, physical people, the uh, national descendants of Abraham? We get into some, some messy hermeneutics if we uh, we look at this any other way. All right, and then verse 31 uh, speaks about repentance. It says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. So just the fact that God is going to place His Spirit within His people doesn't negate this important aspect of repentance. It's because he places his spirit within his people that he gives his people the ability to to have their eyes open, to realize their spiritual needs so that they can turn, they can repent. Uh, That's a a vital aspect of our salvation. That's the means of our salvation. The repentance that comes from the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes and giving us an understanding of the sin that is within us. If we don't have this this realization of how rotten and dirty we are, then we can't have this regenerative work take place within our hearts, within our lives, where we're actually able to observe his ordinances and to keep his laws. The repentance has to come first. And then verses 32 through 38, through the end of the chapter. Can I get somebody to read that, please? 32 through 38? Yes, please. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited 
and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do that for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during their, her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Again, all throughout Ezekiel, we're going to see that same phrase come up over and over again. And so again, through that section, we see the, the motivation, the reason for God doing this. That it is for His glory and for the nations. That the nations also will know that He is the Lord. They'll be able to see and observe the, the great character of who God is. Well, I got this outline here from... Uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And it just goes through and it points out other characteristics of the, the New Covenant that we find here in Ezekiel. So it um, points out the divine intervention. Again, that God is the one who's going to do these things. We saw this back again in Jeremiah 31 with him saying, I will, I will, I will. But it's pointed out here even more that he's going to do this and he's going to do it for his glory, for his sake. He is the one who is at work. We see this in verses 22 through 36. Uh, we see the restoration of both Israel and Judah from exile, that they're going to come back together. Uh, this is in verse 24 and then also 33 through 35. And once again, we saw really focused on this in the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. But it's mentioned here again as they're being fulfilled here in the new covenant. Uh, it mentions the cleansing and renewal. Uh, this is something that, once again, is unique to the New Covenant, that His people will be cleansed and made new. That's in verses 25 through 26, 29 and 30, and 33 through 35. Then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in verse 27. That is huge. Uh, remember in Psalm 51, David prayed, God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And we saw Him, we saw God take the... Um, take his Holy Spirit away from Saul, that Saul was walking with the Holy Spirit, and then um, the Holy Spirit would depart from Saul. This was seemed to be a, a common thing in the Old Testament, but under the New Covenant, uh, the Holy Spirit will take up residence, and he will indwell us. Uh, in Ephesians 1.13 and 4.30, we see that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And then um, the final aspect characteristic that we have up there is the obedience of God's people. Also in verse 27, that because of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, his people have an ability to obey, an ability to uh, keep what it is that he has commanded for us. Any thoughts or questions on anything in Ezekiel 36? It's a great passage. Talk about our hearts of stone being taken out and being given this heart of flesh 
that is central to Christianity, right? That. Steph, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, just like you had to put yourself in the position of the um, those other guys. Um, <laughs> what is the Jewish viewpoint of the Holy Spirit? Uh, as far as if he leaves their unitarian their understanding right yeah I don't know I don't have a whole lot of experience with Jews do you know well it would probably be similar to what they would say about uh, like Daniel's vision and uh, Daniel 7 about the son of man and how they envision the Messiah so when Jesus claimed to be the son of God in John 10 they equated that to blasphemy saying you make yourself equal with God so there was some sort of understanding. I mean, they weren't Trinitarian, obviously. They are Trinitarian. But they had some sort of understanding of something going on, whether they thought maybe that's God himself coming, uh, like a, a modalist would say. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. And I would venture, a, venture to guess the vast majority of Jews today would just say, we have no idea, and that they would be comfortable with saying that hunting. Yeah. All right, well, let's turn back to Ezekiel 11. We're going to go backwards a little bit. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 11. And I will read verses 15 through 21. But as I do, I want you to be looking for some of these same characteristics. The divine intervention of God, the restoration of Israel from exile, cleansing and renewal, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, and obedience of God's people. Be looking for those same things in this chapter and see if you can identify them as I read uh, Ezekiel 11, about uh, the heart exchange here in this chapter. Ezekiel 11. Huh? I'll be starting in verse 15. Uh, actually, 14. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them are those whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far, among, far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they came there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. So, what did you guys see in there? Were you paying attention? Any similarities? Well, 18 was the cleansing and renewal. Yet, they will remove all the detestable things and abominations from the land. That's only something they would do if they had this desire within them, right? What else? They only have to obey. Yep. 
A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Again. There we see that exact same language there in verse 19, right? That's something that they're going to be themselves? No, that God is going to do, right? That I will give them one heart, and I will put a spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Again, this is all a work of God. God is at work in his people. Uh, we see divine intervention all throughout this passage, right? Something that God is going to do for his people. All right. And he will you know, follow his decrees and keep his laws. Yep. He's done that. Good. Yeah, they will, again, only be able to do that because they have a, a new heart, because they have the indwelling Holy Spirit, not because of anything uh, innate to mankind. All right, well, let's jump forward. Uh, we were in Ezekiel 36 prior to that. Let's go back to Ezekiel 37. And we still have 15 minutes. We'll see if we can get through this chapter, maybe, on Ezekiel 37. I'm going to break up the reading for this. So let's see if we can get three volunteers. One for verses 1 through 6. Who's got that? Yeah. All right. And then 7 through 10. Got it. And 11 through 14. Mike. All right. Go ahead. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He called me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. <laughs> Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on, on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. All right, real quick, before we move on, that is totally impossible, right? Can you just envision that? Just picture Ezekiel there looking at these dry bones, like these not only dead, but dry bones. They've been sitting there just rotting away for a while now. Um, there is no natural way that these bones can be revived, right? This is uh, just setting the scene. God painting the picture. You're saying, okay, well, get ready, because this is absolutely impossible. Make sure that you know that um, this is going to have to be a work of God. All right, go ahead, 7 through 10. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. That would be terrifying, right? <laughs> Nasby says, an exceedingly great army. Yeah, yeah, zombies, right? They, they were literally brought back to life. And what was the purpose? Did you catch that at the end of verse 6 that Logan read? 
so that you will know that I am the Lord, right? This is just a, a big uh, illustration that God is giving Ezekiel. Uh, let's keep going. Mike, 11 through 14, please. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up and out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Amen. That's awesome. So the bones are who? Israel. Israel, right? So are you starting to get the picture now that God is showing to Ezekiel and to all of Israel through Ezekiel that these bones that were deader than dead, right? These dry bones have been given life. And this is a picture of Israel who was deader than dead, right? Who had gone off and chased these other idols and uh, completely hopeless as far as the, the Old Covenant goes, they had no hope of achieving salvation through the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant never promised salvation. The Old Covenant was there to show them the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And now we have this description of the New Covenant in Ezekiel 36 and going on to Ezekiel 37 talking about the absolute deadness of Israel and how God is the one who is going to regenerate them, right? This whole aspect, again, this concept of regeneration to be given new life to be brought up from the dead uh, to have this living water poured over them and this to be born of the spirit again like jesus told nicodemus is a supernatural work of god and uh what a what a picture what an illustration to have witnessed and for god to give for his people to look at what he's going to do in the future for his people any thoughts or questions on those verses? Those amazing verses. Well, it is, we, we should just be amazed that we get to be included in all this. Amen. All of this was promised to Israel and you read the New Testament, it took the apostles a while to understand. Yeah. I mean, Jesus specifically said, I didn't come for the world, the whole world, I came for specifically the lost sheep of the house of Israel, is what he says. Yeah. And uh, of course, we realize that he ends up being rejected by Israel. He dies and offers salvation to the whole world. And then he tells his apostles after the resurrection, you're going to go to the Gentiles. Amen. And even then, Peter's preaching to the Israelites and saying in Acts <laughs> chapter 3, if you repent right now, then all this, all this stuff will happen. It's like they couldn't have envisioned a 2,000 plus year time of Gentile inclusion into the house of God yeah. before these promises are realized to Israel, before God would do this to Israel. And despite Peter preaching there in Acts 3, later on in Acts 10, he has to be hit upside the head and told, no, the, this is for the Gentiles, right? The sheep being brought down out of heaven and him being told three times, Peter, take and eat, take and eat. And then Galatians 2, we see that he's still not eating with the Gentiles. He's um, he's making himself aloof from them. And um, Paul has to confront him and call him out to his face because 
this same Peter who's preaching these things to the Gentiles uh, is just so ingrained in this Jewish mindset that it's it's hard for him to understand this is for the Gentiles and it's something that you and I just kind of take for granted. Well, um, it's, it's clear still that they didn't lose nope. sight of this. Like they, It wasn't that, oh, now it's coming to the Gentiles, so now we can just forget about Ezekiel because Israel rejected it, so they're not getting it. That wasn't their view. Yep. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 kind of shoots that option out of the water. Amen. And so that's why you know there, there's that phrase, we are living in a parenthesis. I don't really like that phrasing so much, but it is something unforeseen. This is a mysterious time that the Old Testament didn't talk about, but yep. the apostles clearly saw this time still happening sometime in the future. And it's important to know that the Gentiles, the church, we're not replacing Israel. God's promises to Israel still stand. We're just grafted in. Uh, God is expanding his the, the scope of his covenant. He's not changing his covenant with Israel, but he is... Uh, expanding it to include the nations, to include us as well. All right, well, let's look at one more illustration that God gives to Ezekiel. This one's not quite as exciting, not as dramatic of an illustration as these dead bones coming back to life. And in fact, I would probably skip over it if we didn't happen to live in Utah. But living in Utah and knowing that people take these verses out of context and misapply them, saying they're talking about the Bible and the Book of Mormon, I think it's important that we go over them and see in context that it's absolutely not talking about that at all. It is clearly talking about what God is planning to do in the future for Israel as a part of uh, his new covenant work. So I'll go ahead and read verses 15 through 23. It says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions, then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them. So here we're getting the explanation. What's going on with these two sticks being brought together? It says right here, starting in 19. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king of all of them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Then they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. So this is... um, aside from the whole Mormonism thing and and their understanding, it's very clear. He's talking about these two different uh, Judah and Israel, which were essentially two nations. They're going to be brought back together as one nation. And this is all very physical language. In 22, it says, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. 
and we talked before about the the covenantal understanding of uh, how the the Davidic covenant would be fulfilled and how this new covenant would be fulfilled. They think, well, this is all going to be fulfilled spiritually. That it's actually fulfilled now spiritually. This is very clearly talking about a, a future restoration of Israel, um, and it's a, a physical restoration on the mountains of Israel. That's very physical terminology. If you spiritualize that, you have to identify where the mountains of Israel are or what that's speaking of. And God hasn't given us the latitude to treat his word that way. He has spoken clearly in his word, and we need to let him speak and not go beyond what he has written. Any thoughts or questions on the whole two sticks being brought together in one stick? All right. Well, I'm going to wrap out the, the chapter here. And 24 is a, a crazy verse. We have to slow down and read this. Uh, it says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Again, to have one king over this nation, which was split for hundreds of years, which was in captivity under Assyria and Babylon for hundreds of years, and that they are now going to have the ability to walk in his ordinances, to keep his statutes, to observe them. This is all radically new, something that was not even a possibility before. This is uh, a, a vital aspect of what God is going to do in the future because of the, the new covenant that he has established with his people. 25. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. Again, very physical. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace. There's our, our phrase again, right? The covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary and the, in their midst. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God. They will be my people. And the nations, not just Israel, but the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We saw forever in uh, verse 25. It says everlasting covenant in verse 26. And there in 28, it says forever. And I put a, a list up here of different places where it talks about the new covenant being an eternal covenant. In Isaiah 24, 5, 61, 8, Jeremiah 31 and 32, also Jeremiah 50. Uh, next week we'll get into the, the New Testament. And 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 13, that talks about the, the new covenant being eternal. All of these talk about the eternal uh, quality of the new covenant and while this new covenant was established and, and promised in the old testament it's really going to be fulfilled in the new testament that's where we're going to go next week and what we're going to get into next week any closing thoughts or questions uh, what we've looked at tonight all right so we're saying the people that believe that so the two sticks come together and they believe that that's already happened. So like, but that would include like the Jews today, right? But also like the lost tribes, I guess, some the some don't call it, like the Samaritans, but the other tribes got mixed in with like Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's 
all of Israel being brought together. And uh, yeah, the covenant theologians who spiritualize uh, these covenants of the Davidic covenant and new covenant, um, they have to say that it has been fulfilled, not in a literal physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, that we, the church, are Israel. And very much like your, your upbringing, that we would kind of represent different aspects, different tribes of uh, Israel. That's not what the Bible says. Yeah. All right, well, let's pray and we will head out. <laughs>